Listeners, I'm afraid I must inform you of an extremely unfortunate event. Several of them, in fact. So many that we've decided to create a podcast to chronicle them all. But if you're interested in well-produced podcasts with celebrity guests, you would be better off listening to something else. There will be no famous people on this show, and only the cheapest editing software will be used. There won't even be a Squarespace ad. For those of you brave enough to stay, welcome to our perilous podcast discussing a series of unfortunate events by Lemony Snicket. Welcome to Not So Young Adults, where two former teens try to recapture the glory days of their youth by discussing their favorite YA books to figure out what makes them so good. My name is Spencer, and as always, I am joined by my lovely co-host and our resident librarian in training, Jess. It me. Hello. How are you, Jess? Hi. I'm doing pretty good. We're recording pretty early in the morning. Yeah, we got a nice, lovely morning show feel going on. I'm wearing a cardigan. Yeah. You have your tea. I got tea. I have my little hot water bottle because it's a little chilly beans. Yeah, it's a little chilly beans in here. A rare occurrence here in El Paso. <laughs> Don't want to give away our location now. Sure. <laughs> um, but I'm happy to be joining y'all. Uh, and Yeehaw. today we're going to be talking about book the ninth. Nine. Or the ninth, yes. Well, that's how they say it, book the ninth. Well, you're right. Um, who am I to disagree with Snicket? The, the fancy way of doing it. Yes. Uh, which is Carnivorous Carnival. Carnivorous Carnival. That's right. It's book nine in a series of unfortunate events. And I'm not talking about the Bengals season. Got him again. Got him again. Yeah. Tomorrow for us is, is Super the Bowl The best Sunday. day of the year. Yep. So hopefully. Huge Chiefs fan. And I'm sorry for everyone to who's disappointed to learn that I like sports. But I promise I like it in the nerdiest way possible. It's very true. I'm all about like the analytics, breaking down the different formations and, and plays and schematics. I am not cool. That is all. Glad we established that. <laughs> so <laughs> the second best part of this Sunday is our podcast, isn't it, Jess? Yeah, I think that's is. what America would say. Absolutely. So let's stop denying the people what they want. Enough jock talk. Jess, would you be so kind as to start off our book summary with the book's dedication? I'd love to. That wasn't a dramatic pause. I couldn't think of the word. No, I knew it. I could see it in your eyes. <laughs> you could see the fear. <laughs> For Beatrice, our love broke my heart and stopped yours. So book nine begins directly after the events of the hostile hospital with the Baudelaire's hiding in the trunk of Count Olaf's car. Listening in on Olaf and his troop, the children learn that Olaf is traveling to the mountainous hinterland. Hinterlands. <laughs> Just okay. lost all our Scandinavian listeners. There it is. Out the window. Uh, Bye-bye. They don't have electricity, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they still wear clogs, right? Oh, God. I, we're so bad at this. Danish. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's a difference. 
traveling to the mountainous hinterlands to see a woman named Madame Lulu, a fortune teller who apparently has been telling Olaf where to find the Baudelaire children every time they have moved. But this time he plans to use her to find out if one of the Baudelaire parents is in fact alive. Car finally stops, and after Olaf and his troop depart, the children climb out and see a sign saying the Great Malenko. Oh no! They're at a Juggalo festival. No, Help! no, 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 no. Oh, that's that's my fanfic. Uh, <laughs> no, they see a sign reading Caligari Carnival. They're at the circus. Oh, fun. Yeah, I know. Can't wait for circus themed books. I can't stop imagining Madame Lulu as Madame Zeroni from every Holes. time. That's every all time. I think of. Yeah, and and we'll get to a later part where I'll discuss where that. Ah, is kind ooh, of ruined. But. Ooh, a little tease. Madame Zeroni says you must take a pig up a hill to marry that pretty, pretty girl you want to marry. It's from Holes. Yeah, which we'll probably cover later on. Oh, definitely. That's going to be one of our first. Yeah. Well, the children notice a phone booth and try to call Mr. Poe. Apparently, there weren't any telegraphs available. Got him. But the operator refuses to connect them without any money. Clearly, they've never heard of Carrot Top because, like, just call collect, right? <laughs> is that a Carrot Top bit? Well, no, that's uh, the only reason I know who Carrot Top is is because of his commercials for calling collect. I've never seen these. What? what? <laughs> All I know is that he does a lot of steroids and he makes props. Yeah, well, he was also like a spokesperson for collect calls. I didn't know that was like a business. I thought that was just like a, an infrastructure thing. I didn't know. Like, I guess no, that has I mean, to be like, business. I think they, yeah, part of the money that the person pays when they're paying for the call, oh. it probably goes to this collect call service. Sounds like a scummy endeavor. Any hoozle. <laughs> Shout out to Carrot Top. <laughs> the children then sneak over to Madame Lulu's caravan, where they hear her complaining about her circus not getting enough customers. The children recognize her accent as the same one Olaf used when he was disguised as Gunther in the Ursatz elevator. For those who don't remember, his accent was just like sounding vaguely European and saying please randomly in sentences. Like in places where it shouldn't be. It just isn't. You're like, hello, please. Could you come <laughs> over, please? Like, like, like Amanda, please. Hmm. Amanda, 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 Amanda. <gasps> Did Amanda rip off? No, I don't think so. I think um, the Amanda show was first. All right. If there's dancing lobsters in this book, though, I'm going to start getting suspicious. <laughs> Olaf demands to consult Lulu's crystal ball, but she reminds him that the ball only works in the morning. The children decide to infiltrate the carnival in order to find out Madam, in order to find out how Madame Lulu keeps finding them and if she truly knows the fate of their parents. So, using clothes from Olaf's trunk, the layers disguise themselves as carnival freaks. Klaus and Violet share an oversized shirt and pants to look like a two-headed person, while Sunny puts on one of Olaf's fake beards to make it appear like she is entirely covered in fur. And by put on a fake beard, I mean she, like, climbs into it, which has got to be disgusting. <laughs> Children go to Madame Lou's trailer and ask to join the carnival's freak show. To disguise their voices, Klaus, who is now going by the name Elliot, spoke in a high-pitched voice, while Violet, now Beverly, used a deep voice. And Sunny simply spoke in growls as she was now Chabo the Wolf Baby. The audiobook does such an excellent job with these voices. I mean, Klaus's voice is fine, whatever. But um, <laughs> Violet's voice or Beverly's voice is so deep. It's actually insane. I almost couldn't get into it because it was <laughs> so funny. Just every time she spoke was, uh, who's the... 
Tim Curry. Tim, yeah, yeah, it was Tim Curry's like deepest of so, deep voices. <laughs> so he's not doing like a girl doing a deep voice. He's just doing Tim he's Curry just doing, doing a deep voice. His deep voice, yes, it's That's amazing. Perfect. Oh, I love the Tim Curry's. I need to start listening to the audiobooks just to hear these little snippets. Yeah. After making Violet and Klaus attempt to eat an ear of corn and Sunny show off her menacing teeth, Madame Lulu allows the children to join her circus. Honestly, probably one of the least degrading showbiz auditions you can have. Eating the corn, I was very uncomfortable with that scene. Hey, you don't you don't know what it's like out there, babe. <laughs> the things I had to do to get in the sea lion show. <laughs> She takes them to the Freaks trailer, where they meet Hugo the Hunchback, Colette the Contortionist, and Kevin, who's ambidextrous. Mm. The what next a freak. <laughs> Kevin is our favorite character ever. He might be the best character yeah, in the series. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> the next day, the children learn that Lulu had told Olaf that one of the Baudelaire parents was still alive. <gasps> Gasp. And is located somewhere in the Mortman Mountains. Later, after suffering through a humiliating freak show, the children attempt to inspire the other freaks to leave the circus, but words fall on deaf, and in Kevin's case, ambidextrous ears. They refuse to, to believe that any of them could do any other work. Yeah. She, I, they're like, I mean, come on, you, you could be like an air traffic control person. No plane would follow the directions of a man with equally functioning hands. <laughs> like That's Kevin's just like refuses to believe he's anything but, like, the elephant man. It's outrageous. As the children are trying to convince Kevin that ambidextrous people can, in fact, have normal jobs, they are interrupted by a loud and unsettling roar. The freaks go out to find that Ol- to find Olaf's car parked in front of their trailer. Attached to it was a giant metal cage packed with several very large and very unhappy lions. Olaf announces to a gathering crowd that the carnival has a new exciting attraction. A lion pit was to be dug, and the next day, one of the freaks was going to be thrown into it. How fun! How exciting! <laughs> cool! Y- yay! <laughs> well... That night, the children sneak into Madame Lulu's tent. In the center of the tent was a table with a crystal ball sitting on top. Violet quickly figures out that Madame Lulu used a series of ropes and pulleys to create special effects that made her crystal ball appear to be magic. Ooh, showmanship. Uh, mm, yeah. Under the table, the Baudelaire's discover the true secret behind Madame Lulu's fortune telling. A library! Never underestimate the power of a well-stocked library. Indeed. Under the table were piles of letters, magazines, newspaper clippings, and photographs. Madame Lulu's powers were nothing more than research and networking. Honestly, though, some of the best powers you can have in the world. Yeah. Especially networking. Truly. can get you anywhere. Yeah. Look at every politician. (laughs) You think they're good at their jobs? No, they just know the right people. They know the right people and they have the right money. While looking through the documents, the Baudelaire's accidentally knock over and break the crystal ball. The sound of the crash attracts Madame Lulu, who rushes in and tries to threaten the orphans. But with her mystique now as shattered as the crystal ball, the Baudelaire's stand up for themselves, and Madame Lulu quickly crumbles into a pile of tears. I gotta say, I was not expecting that reaction. I was amazed how quickly she just crumbled, just the moment anyone gave her any kind of pushback. I mean, I feel that. Remember that one time where I broke down crying whenever our fire alarm beeped really loudly? (laughs) 
<laughs> there had been some other factors leading up to that, but yes, <laughs> at one time, which is the weird. It was so thing. strange. It, it's like it was like I think God was trying to annoy you. He just gave it one little beep. I think so. Right at the worst possible time. <laughs> Lulu throws off her wig and reveals that her real name is Olivia and that she was actually a former member of the VFD. Conspiracy. I know. Oh, what does VFD stand for? Vastly Fraudulent Divinations? That's good. Thank you. That's good. That's good. That's pretty good. (laughs) I'm going to send that to Snake It. (laughs) Olivia lives by the motto, give people what they want, which... Which led her to becoming a carnival fortune teller and working for Olaf, despite knowing how evil he was. She's so her motto is mostly I have no spine. Exactly. She then tells the children about the VFD disguise training and shows them the standard disguise kit all members used, which included all of Olaf's previous disguises along with along with the freak costumes the children were currently wearing. You'd think like having a standard set of disguises and like basically characters kind of defeats the purpose of a disguise kit. I don't know. I mean... uh, I guess if it's all within the house, but we'll see that that could become a problem (laughs) between members. Lulu realizes the children's true identity and offers to help the children go to the Mortman Mountains to help them find their parents. Unfortunately, Lulu admits that the prediction she gave to Olaf about their parents was just a guess. While they were understandably skeptical about Lulu's sudden change in allegiance, the Baudelaire's accepted her offer. Violet comes up with a plan to drive up the mountain using an old roller coaster car, which for some reason contained a small engine. I don't think he knows how roller coasters work. Yeah, I don't think like each roller coaster car has its own engine. <laughs> no, in fact, there there's just... It's, a, it's on a track. Engine. It's on a track. Yeah, you, yeah. You pull it up and the power of gravity is what runs the yeah, entire yeah. world. Anyways, okay. We, we um, know that. We know that. <laughs> I'm not getting into this. I don't know anything about engineering. Anyways. <laughs> we, don't know, we do know like how physics works. <laughs> right. So Violet comes up with this plan to drive up the mountain using an old roller coaster car and parts from Madame Lulu's special effects lighting. Apparently these old rusted out cars were fine. All they needed was a fan belt. Which, I mean, sure. 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 I don't know. (laughs) I bet a fan belt is key in car. Sure. We're out of our depth here. (laughs) Once it gets back to biology, we'll have more things to say. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That night, Esme comes to the freak caravan sporting a sash with the words, I love freaks written on it, along with a hat with an angry face drawn on it to make it appear like a second head, and a sack on her shoulder to imitate a hunchback. (laughs) What I love about Esme is her subtlety. (laughs) Esme then presents a proposal to the group of freaks. If the person who is chosen the next day to be thrown into the lion pit instead pushes Madame Lulu in, they will be allowed to join Count Olaf's crew for a life of crime and theater. (laughs) If that offer wasn't enticing enough, she also brought gifts to help the freaks conceal their deformities. She's sweet. We give Esme a bad rap. For Hugo, she gives him a large coat to hide his hunchback. Colette is given an oversized bathrobe, which allows her to contort her body within it, but without showing people. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) best of all, Kevin gets uh, some rope to tie one of his equally strong arms behind his back. Now, what irks me is that she chooses his right hand to tie behind the back, which, right. I don't know, I feel like being left-handed is freakier than being ambidextrous, or at least equally as freaky. If you are so concerned about how you have equally strong hands, 
and you want to be normal, you would want to be right-handed. Right. You know? <laughs> That's just outrageous. <laughs> but Kevin's also maybe doesn't have, like, great perspective. Uh, yeah, I think I agree with that. Esme also gives Elliot and Beverly a bag to cover one of their heads and Chabo one of Olaf's old razors. Because that's sanitary. Oh, that has to be the grossest razor to ever exist. <laughs> Especially because Madame Lulu uh, tells Olaf, like, oh, maybe you should shower because you yeah. just got back from, like, bringing all these lions. And he's like, nonsense. I showered 10 days ago. I'll just throw on some cologne and we'll get to it. Which, yeah, you could guess that would be Olaf style. <laughs> Extra gross because it kind of implied that Madame Lulu and Olaf may have had a thing. Yeah, they well, that's what it seems but... like. That's why Esme wants to throw yeah. Madame Lulu in the pit because she's jealous. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Mm, gross. While the Baudelaire's are horrified by the proposition, the rest of the freak caravan accepts the offer, excited to be free from the carnival lifestyle. And there's no other way they could <laughs> get out of this no, horrible business there. No they're in. other skills. <laughs> The next day, the Baudelaire's go to prepare the roller coaster carts while a large and obnoxious crowd gathers around the lion pit. Later that day, the orphans join the other freaks at the lion pit as Olaf announces that Beverly and Elliot have been selected to be devoured by the lions. I'm shocked. The elder Baudelaire's stall for long enough to cause the crowd to riot. And this is a cool moment because they use the stalling skills that Klaus used in the previous book during mm -hmm. the surgery and also the mob psychology they learned about in the Vile Village. So they kind of combine those skills, literally put their two heads together and use that to uh, escape the situation, which I think is a, cool, is a nice little touch. Smart kids. Amidst the chaos, Madame Lulu, unsurprisingly, betrays the Baudelaire's and tries to shove them into the pit. Oh, who could have seen this coming? <laughs> However, <laughs> she ends up falling into the pit herself, along with Olaf's bald, long-nosed henchman, Rip. Just another example of bald men being discriminated against in this country. When will the hate end, people? Not to mention the long-nosed community. Yeah. <laughs> We're a proud people. <laughs> the Baudelaire's escape the riot and go to Madame Lulu's tent. Inside, they find a map of the mountains with an odd-looking stain on it. Olaf enters and, still not recognizing the Baudelaire's, tells them that the stain is actually a code marking the location of the VFD base. He recruits them along with the rest of the freaks, and they all take off for the mountains, making sure to burn down the carnival on the way out just for good measure. Why mm. not? Because he burns everything. Olaf takes Sonny in his car, leaving Klaus and Violet in the freak caravan, towing behind. As they travel up the mountain, Olaf reveals that Madame Lulu had actually told them their told him their real identities that morning, and he orders the freaks to cut the caravan from the car, sending it hurtling back down the steep slopes. Dun, dun, dun. How will the Baudelaire's get out of this one? Okay, so... Normally we do the editor's note, and we will be, but got something special for this one. So the note has several missing parts in it, and the I saw on the fan wiki someone offers a possible translation of what it's supposed to mean, uh, which is good. It seems like that's pretty accurate, but I thought I'd try my own just to see what I came up with, see if I maybe got a little more accurate of a translation. So... I'm gonna read them back to back. Can I read the original? Yes, I was gonna ask. Okay, yeah, that's good. exactly what I was gonna ask. To my kind e. It tore. I hope you can read that. The weather here is so freezing that the ink in my typewriter ribbon occasionally, here in the Valley of Four, the icy has, and the results are quite 
As my enemies draw closer, it is simply not safe to place the entire manuscript of the Baudelaire's, entitled The Slippery Slope, in y- Instead, I'm taking each of the 13 chapters in different places. Quote, the world is, she will give you a key, in which the first chapter, as well as a rear photograph of a swarm of, to help Mr. Helquist with his illustrations. Under no circumstances should you, Treese, remember, you last hope that the tales of, to the general, I, a, e, e, act, li, n, e, act, that's it. That was very difficult. There's a lot yeah, of dot, job. dot, dots and empty spaces. No, but you did a good job. That That is not easy to read. Thank you. Okay, so that's the original. That's how it actually goes in the book. The fan translation reads, To my kind editor, I hope you can read this letter. The weather here is so freezing that the ink in my typewriter ribbon occasionally stops flowing. Here in the Valley of Four Drafts, the icy river has thawed and the results are quite spectacular. As my enemies draw closer, it is simply not safe to place the entire manuscript of the Baudelaire's latest adventure entitled The Slippery Slope in your immediate possession. Instead, I am taking each of the 13 chapters of the story away and put them in all different places. The world is quiet here. So there's still a blank in the fan translation, so I'm not sure what that's supposed to be. But mm. the So it's the different places blank. Then, quote, the world is quiet here. She will give you a key which will unlock the box. I think they're saying the password is the world is quiet here. Probably. Um, and she will give you a key which will unlock the box which contains the first chapter as well as a rare photograph of a swarm of snow gnats. As well as a rare photograph of a swarm of snow gnats to help Mr. Helkless with his illustrations. Under no circumstances should you, there's still a blank, Beatrice. Remember, you are my last hope that the tales of the Baudelaire orphans can finally be told to the general public. With all due respect, Lemony Snicket. That's pretty That's pretty. That seems right. Yeah. I thought I could do a little better. I thought there's some things that they kind of left out. I think they may have taken too direct an approach with it. Okay. I think Snicket's more clever, so I kind of... Mad-libbed added, it a little bit. I mad-libbed it a bit, but I, you know, I'm really trying to get the essence of what Snicket is trying to say here. So, to my kind eagle exhibitor, I hope you can read things, otherwise writing this would be useless. The weather here is so freezing that the ink in my typewriter ribbon occasionally becomes too depressed to work. Here in the Valley of Four Loco, the icy beverage has gained sentience and the results are quite erratic. As my enemies draw closer, it is simply not safe to place the entire manuscript of the Baudelaire's political tweets entitled The Slippery Slope in your hard drive. Instead, I am taking each of the 13 chapters to radioactive fallout zones. Oh, by the way, I call tweets chapters in different places. The world is flat, said my friend Shirley, and she will give you a key, which will open a box containing proof of Shirley's claims. The introduction is a bit long, so I would just skip to the first chapter, as well as a rare photograph of an illicit drug, as, <laughs> as well as a rare photograph of a swarm of illicit drugs to help Mr. Helquist with his illustrations. <laughs> Under no circumstances should you kiss that person. It's actually the recently passed Beatrice. That one's kind of dark. <laughs> Remember, uses me last hope that the tales of Mothman can be given to the... (laughs) Sorry. Remember, uses me last hope that the tales of the Mothman can be given to the general from those car insurance commercials. You know that guy who's the general, he had the jingle about car insurance? That guy. (laughs) I-A-U-E-E-C-T. I couldn't think of one for that. Sorry. Uh, That was pretty... 
impressive. I, I, Honestly, I, very impressive. I feel like the, the fan translation really missed the ball and in not including Mothman, which we know is a character in the story. It's going to come at some point. I mean, you can feel Mothman in the background can of all we? of this. I feel Mothman in the background <laughs> of all of this. So now that we know what's happened, it's time to discuss our personal proclivities from this week's chapters. And in the spirit of Lemony Snicket, we'll be covering our 13 unfortunate faves, facts, and findings, starting, as always, with number one. Snicket really got me again in this book uh, <laughs> with chapter five, where he defines the phrase deja vu and then repeats the exact same page. Right, but it's like itself. it starts at chapter five, so you still get like the chapter five illustration. Yeah, so you get it twice. It's the exact same page twice. And then towards the end, he's defining deja vu again, but then he does the same paragraph from the chapter five. It's great. It's so funny. Actually, in the audiobook version, it's it's quite a treat as well because at the beginning of every chapter, there's like a little snippet of a little song. And they played it at the start of both chapter fives as well. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> so I, was I like, love that. I was like, what? Uh, also, he in, in explaining déjà vu, he mentions a couple other French phrases, including uh, la, la la pipe morte. I'm butchering the pronunciation. Like the small death. The small death, which is a phrase that they use to describe orgasms. No way. Yeah, you haven't heard that. No, that's what they call orgasms. La, la, la pipe morte, the uh, the little death. I would have thought that that would be like a sneeze or something. Are they not similar? Mm-hmm. Number two, the passage with the Baudelaire's in the Freak Show was honestly really tough to read it was one of the weirdly one of the sadder parts of the series i don't like it at all no the show is basically just people laughing at freaks as they do mundane things like violet and klaus eat a ear of corn again and they are each using one of their arms so they can't do it right right and and so like really the only good part about that is that the hook-handed man is having to keep telling the crowd that he wasn't a part of the show <laughs> yeah for some reason they have the hook-handed man MC the whole thing and everyone's like Oh, look at that freak. He's like, I'm not a freak. And one of the audience members is like, you know, you could put a fake hand on top of that and we wouldn't notice. <laughs> yeah, I love that part. <laughs> that just cracked me up. But yeah, the way the children are like, even though like been through all this stuff and mistreated in all these different ways, it's still really awful to be just laughed at like this. Yeah. And I was like, oh God, it's so sad. I know. And they're not even like permanently like that, but it still has like an effect. Yeah, no, it's still awful. For number three, speaking of sad, Snicket closes chapter six with, I think, one of his best passages, some of his best lines in the whole series. I mentioned one of the quotes before in a previous episode, but I think it's worth reading in full. It comes after the children break the crystal ball in Madame Lulu's tent. You might want, at a particular moment, for a crystal ball not to fall off a table and shatter into a thousand pieces. And even if it happened that the crystal ball did shatter, you might want the sound not to attract anyone's attention. But the sad truth is that truth is sad and that what you want does not matter. A series of unfortunate events can happen to anyone, no matter what they want. And even though the three children did not want the flap of the fortune-telling tent to open, and they did not want Madame Lulu to step inside as the afternoon turned to evening at the Caligari Carnival, everything happened to the Baudelaire orphans that they did not want at all. Iconic. Such a good passage. It, it is. He's so good at writing. I mean, the sad truth is that truth is sad. All timeline. It is. I'd get that tattooed on me. Where? On my chest. Nice. Also, the a series of unfortunate events can happen to anyone is maybe one of the best title drops mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. Just 
I love him using a series of unfortunate events as using it as a noun like that. Like, I don't know. I just found that so effective. I just I can't describe why. I just love that so much. I think it's fantastic. I agree. Number four. In one of the chapter illustrations, Olaf's car is shown to have the license plate, which reads I-H-8-O-R-F-N-S or I hate orphans. Like, he, like how could have they not arrested this man yet? He's having fun with it, which is good, I guess. He's literally spelling it out for everyone. <laughs> he's advertising that he is that guy torturing orphans. God. Number five, book is dark in a lot of ways, but I found a part that was really oddly mature in, in what I'm calling what I'm calling moral relativism for kids. <laughs> this is something Madame Louie says to kind of justify her terrible life choices. She says. I never thought I'd be the sort of person that helps villains. No, I'm not doing that. No. <laughs> I never thought, I don't know why my fortune teller voice is just Irish. <laughs> I that, never. That wasn't Irish. <laughs> I never thought I'd be the sort of person who helps villains, but now I do. Haven't you ever found yourself doing something you never thought you'd do? Well, I guess so, Klaus said and turned to his sisters. Remember when we stole those keys from Hal at the Library of Records? I never thought I'd be a thief. Flynn, Sonny says, which meant something like, and I never thought that I'd become a violent person, but I engaged in a sword fight with Dr. Orwell. <laughs> I mean, sure. We've all done things we never thought we'd do, Violet said, but we always had a good reason. Everybody thinks they have a good reason, Olivia says. Count Olaf thinks getting a fortune is a good reason to slaughter you. Esme Squalor thinks being Olaf's girlfriend is a good reason to join his troop. When I told Count Olaf where to find you, I had a good reason, because my motto is give people what they want which Sonny responds to with the word dubious. <laughs> I, I love that image of Sonny uh, just like dubious. Bull. <laughs> but I just like, morals are relative. Yeah. That's a, a lesson? It is. A, it is. I think it is an important lesson. It is. It is. To learn. That dubious really helps kind of solidify the difference between the Baudelaire's and her and obviously Olaf. Yeah. Who, all of them have very dubious justifications. But yeah. it is interesting, and we'll see at another point here, that ties into another theme that we're seeing develop in this book. Number six, what we've learned about VFD. Buckle in, boys. This is biggest info dump we've gotten yet. Yeah. Okay, so one, on Madame Lulu's tent was a logo that appeared to be just another image of an eye, but actually contained the letters VFD within it. Also a really great passage by Daniel excellent writing there oh yes when he's like no one saw the children entering the tent it yeah. takes this like weird third person perspective it's really cool it was really good um okay another thing madam lulu was at one point a member of the organization mm -hmm. okay the members of vfd received disguise training which consisted of three phases veiled facial disguises i.e fake scars hair dye etc various finery disguises like costumes and voice fakery disguises such as accents i think a lot of people skip that third one right so the volunteers also received the same disguise kit which included the disguises the boldelaires used in this book as well as all of the disguises olaf used throughout the series now she mentions volunteers and so I just want to point out that when the children realized the eye on the tent flaps were an insignia, Sonny says, volu, like an unfinished word, which I feel like could mean quite a few things. But I'm convinced that I might know what VFD means. But I do know what it is. I remember that from reading before. 
So I'm not going to say if you're right or not, but you have a theory. Yes. Okay. So then apparently there was a great schism in Mm -hmm. the organization that caused it to fracture into two different sides. And it's implied that people like Olaf and Esme caused the riff uh, and then were at war with the good guys that were the Snickets and the Baudelaire's and probably the other, I'm guessing the other parental figures the children had yeah, the quagmire. that died. Yeah, yeah. Like, I was going to say the quagmires, mm-hmm. but also maybe Uncle Morty and right. uh, the old lady. Okay, so Madam Lulu refers to the members as volunteers. Mm-hmm. And when she speaks of the lions, she says, quote, those lions used to be noble creatures. A friend of mine trained them to smell smoke, Mm. which was helpful in our line of work. Mm -hmm. Also, Olaf burns everything down. Okay, so let's let's cut scene. I'm driving home from work one day. Way over the speed limit. Uh, No, actually, Ed, but I want to go get Scooter's Coffee. So I'm driving a different way than I normally do. And I pass by this building and it has the letters WVFD on it. And it triggered me a bit. The W just stood for like whatever neighborhood I was in. Uh But the VFD stood for Volunteer Fire Department. Ooh. And so. Yeah. I'm convinced yeah. that the VFD is a volunteer fire department. That's uh-huh. my that's my theory. I, I like your guess. I like your logic getting there. Thank I think you. It's a very good, reasonable guess. Thank you. Thank you. All and I'll say it, is that we will get the answer soon. Yeah, you guys, let us know what you think. If you know mm-hmm. the answer, don't you dare share. Don't it. you tell us. But like, tweet at us. Let us know what you think. Yeah, Jess doesn't read our Twitter, so you can say whatever whatever you want about her there. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. Good work. And for number seven, in the book The Miserable Mill, Snicket mentions that a fortune teller never forgave him for breaking the crystal ball after he was tripped by a police officer and knocked it over. Mm. Could this be an early reference to Madame Lulu? That is a good catch that I did not catch. Shout out to the uh, fan wiki. They noted that one. I could definitely see Snicket putting that in. Absolutely. Or using that later. He's like, oh, that'd be a good plot device later. All right, so number eight. Once again, Snicket is able to express deep and complex emotions in a beautiful and unique way. When talking about grief, he says, quote, Grief is a sneaky thing because it can disappear for a long time and then pop back up when you least expect it. When I am able, I go out walking on Briny Beach very early in the morning, and the ocean is so peaceful that I feel peaceful too. As if I am no longer grieving for the woman that I love and will never see her again. But then, when I am cold and duck into a tea shop, I have only to reach for the sugar bowl before my grief returns. And I find myself crying so loudly that the other customers ask me if I could possibly lower my sobs. With the Baudelaire orphans, it was as if their grief were a very heavy object that they each took turns carrying so that they would not all be crying at once. But sometimes... The object was too heavy for one of them to move without weeping. So Violet and Sunny stood next to Klaus, reminding him that this was something they could all carry together until at last they found a safe place to lay it down. (laughs) Snicket is on fire, this book. I know. I happened to read this while I was like running errands around my (laughs) school, like in the hallways, and was just like crying. 
literally I had like tears in my eyes. It was very embarrassing. It's very reasonable though. It's so good. And we were talking the other night about this passage, but also other times that Snicket is so good at um, explaining a concept, a very complicated and nuanced concept or idea to children in a way that's easy for them to digest without sacrificing the nuance and the fullness of the the sentiment. Yeah. And I just think that's such a skill, and I think that's probably his best skill at all of this. So, number nine, Olaf mentions a couple times in this book that he will not be sharing any of the Bolinar fortune with his hench people uh, besides Esme. <laughs> Tough. Uh, so, I guess abusing children is just kind of like a hobby for them. <laughs> I was just like, dang, brutal. That's unfortunate for them. <laughs> yeah. Tough look. Number 10, Sunny shows a penchant for cooking Ooh. when she adds cinnamon to Hugo's hot chocolate. And her new skill makes sense as a natural progression from her constantly biting and assumably tasting things around her. But it could also just be that Snicket ran out of ways to dissolve major conflicts with biting. Yeah, there's only so many ways you can get out of a situation through biting things. Yeah. I think Snicket's like, she needs another thing. <laughs> I need I need some other angle. And there's another moment, too, with Sunny in where he just talks about how she's just grown up. Mm -hmm. A bit like she's Mm -hmm. kind of coming into her own person, which I thought was a very sweet moment as well. For number 11, one of the themes of this book is how the Baudelaire's are starting to reflect their own tormentor. Mm. Uh, So most prominently with them adopting Olaf's favorite tactic of disguise, using his own costumes. And so it's just a little touch that Snicket's adding where they're kind of using what they know and doing things that Olaf does to find, you know. Yeah, just... learning from what's around them. And... and, like, their life's been defined by Olaf almost as much as anything else at this point. So it's it's interesting. And it kind of goes in with the moral relativism thing. Is like the children are now being forced to do things that are not evil by any stretch. Yeah. Not nearly on the level of Olaf, but are not things they want to do and are not good. Right. And are, you know, it's, it's interesting. I like where that's going. It makes sense. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that is an interesting take on it. Number 12. The description of what happened after Lulu and the bald man fell Ugh. into the pit is absolutely brutal. So I'll give you a little snippet. Quote, but then the siblings heard another sound in the pit. A horrible crunching and ripping sound that was far worse than the roaring of the beasts. The crowd stopped arguing to see what was making the noise, but the Baudelaire's were not interested in seeing anything more, and stepped back from the terrible sound and huddled against one another with their eyes shut as tightly as possible. Even in this position, however, the children could hear the terrible, terrible sounds from the pit, even over the laughter and cheers of the carnival visitors as they crowded together at the edge of the pit to see what was happening. And so the three youngsters turned away from the commotion and, with their eyes still closed, slipped away into the confusion, stumbling through all the cheering people until at last they were in the clear, a phrase which here means far enough away from the roller coaster that they could no longer see or hear what was going on. Uh, that's awful. Like, brutal, brutal stuff. Yeah, that's Oh, bad. man. That's bad. Yeah. I, they're going to get some PTSD from that. Yeah, their PTSD is getting PTSD at this point. <sighs> so, finally, number 13, as always, we have our literary references. Uh, not a ton this week, but... Then again, circuses aren't generally known as great literary destinations. I think I might argue with that, but... 
we can... oh, well, I guess you're, yeah, I think your piece is going to argue. So we have Hugo the Hunchback, which is obviously a reference to author Victor Hugo, who wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame, as well as Les Miserables. I did not know that. Oh, really? Same guy. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. And a fun fact about Les Mis, Hugo was given an advance of 300,000 francs, and today's money is about $3.8 million. Are you kidding me? Uh, this is for an eight-year license to Les Mis, and it is still the highest figure ever paid for a piece of literature. That's insane. Not even close. And that equates to about $2,500 a page or $7 a word. Oh, uh, and that's insane. my God. It is absolutely wild. <sighs> uh, another freak, Colette the Contortionist, is possibly a reference to the French author... Sidon Gabrielle Colette, more commonly known as simply Colette. Uh, her, she's best known for her novella, Gigi, which was adapted into a stage play in 1951, starring a then-unknown Audrey Hepburn. Interesting. Right. Um, well, this makes sense mm-hmm. because Colette in the audiobook has a thick French accent. Yeah, and so I think that's probably hints that that's what the illusion is. Yeah. Uh, Colette has an interesting life, the author. After a failed marriage in which her husband would lock her in a room until she, quote, produced enough pages to suit him. Oh, she was no. a writer. Oh, so she was uh, a slave. And, of course, he owned copyright to her work. So after the divorce, she couldn't make any money off the things she had written while they were together. Mm. Um, she had a series of lesbian affairs. Good for her. Including one with an, an ambiguously gendered person, simply known as Max. Who she shared a kiss with during a stage show in 1907, which nearly caused a riot. How French. (laughs) Uh, But before you crown her as a boss babe, her second marriage ended in part due to her affair with her 16-year-old stepson. Colette was in her 40s at the time. Now that's French. No. (laughs) Real 180 reading her wiki page. Jesus. That's a lot. Uh, we also get another L for Klaus, as he mistakenly refers to Joseph Merrick, more famously known as the Elephant Man, as John Merrick. That's a small L. I think people did call him John Merrick, but, oh, okay, I, but... I'm just here to take down Klaus a peg. <laughs> but he has been slipping up in the last few books, and, and I just can't help but wonder if it's something to do with all the incredible amount of trauma he's been Yeah, through, one but... would think. Uh, but the first play I was ever in was The Elephant Man. Uh, which which was based on the uh, Broadway stage show, which famously doesn't use prosthetics for the Elephant Man character. It's all imagined. Okay. Um, and the show is very famous for having very famous people play the Elephant Man. Probably most famously, David Bowie starred in the as Joseph Merrick on Broadway in 1980. But other famous people to play the part were Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker. Oh. Billy Crudup. Crudup uh, is just a famous stage actor. Theater nerds will know who he is and be mad that I butchered his pronunciation of his name. Hmm. And most recently, Bradley Cooper, who is currently starring in the role on Broadway right now. Fascinating. At the time of recording. Yeah. And next, we also have a mountain trail, Plath Path, which is one a great name and also a reference to writer Sylvia Plath. Okay. And while not technically literature, the name Madame Lulu... Possibly a reference to the collaborative album between avant-garde singer-songwriter Lou Reed and the thrash metal band Metallica. Hmm. This is unlikely, though, primarily due to the fact that Carnivorous Carnival was released nine years before the album. Interesting. And also because the album is universally hated. (laughs) I love that. 
For context, Lulu is a concept album based on the two Lulu stage plays by 19th century German expressionist playwright Frank Wiedekind. I'm already asleep. The exact kind of thing Metallica fans love. You know. And I haven't seen this confirmed anywhere, but I do think Madame Lulu may actually be a reference to those plays. They're actually par- fairly famous. Okay. Um, well, that's probably accurate then. Because that author, he also wrote a play that was translated and adapted into a very famous musical, Spring Awakening, which um, had a huge revival in the early 2000s. It was super popular. And they also did a really cool adaptation where they collaborated with a deaf school. So on stage, they had both deaf and hearing performers and they had sign language translators on the play too and so they would do the songs while translating it was really cool it's a really beautiful adaptation awesome uh but it's also very dark really messed up play it's a lot of like awful things happen it mm. but final bonus fun fact frank viderkin's great grandson one of his great grandsons was douglas adams huh. author of Hit- author of hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy love that for them mm-hmm Okay, so I actually have one to add here. It's not a literary reference, but it's a historical one that I caught. Well, maybe you should have a historical reference section. Get out of my turf. Well, I'm adding this. Okay. Uh, When the children are discussing the lions, Sonny says, Edisirk, which meant maybe someday we can rescue these lions. And the way that Edisirk is spelt is actually crusade backwards, which Mm. may be a reference to Richard the Lionheart, who was a former king of England and an important Christian commander during the Third Crusade. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. All right, I'll allow it. Thank you. All right. Well, now it's time to go down America's favorite road. No, not Route 66. That's played out. Who cares about that anymore? It's the road (laughs) to pretension. All right. The Road to Pretension is where we take a deeper look at this week's story to figure out what the author's doing over there that's making it so good and so fun to read. Mm, what is he doing? Is it magic? No. It's literary techniques. And this week, something smells a bit fishy as we take a look at the literary device, Red Herring. Okay, so this is something that's been brought up before, I feel like. Well, we've yes, seen a red herring. We have, really. and I will, okay. I will talk about okay. that in a minute. So a red herring, uh, you guys might remember from a previous episode, is a piece of information in a story that distracts the reader from the more important relevant information. While red herrings are technically considered a type of foreshadowing, I I think it's easier to think of them as more of like anti-foreshadowing, giving the reader clues to an outcome that isn't actually there. You most often see this in mystery novels as like a false clue to misdirect the reader into thinking the crime or whatever was committed by someone other than the actual culprit. They're a staple in pretty much every Sherlock Holmes story or every Agatha Christie book. Mm -hmm. So the term red herring has actually a pretty interesting origin, primarily because of the fact that there is no such thing as a red herring. Really? There is no fish called a red herring. They're just herring. Well, yeah, so rather the term refers to hearing a fish, usually herring, in a strong brine which causes the meat to turn red, as well as giving it a particularly strong odor. I can hear the Scandinavian listeners' mouth watering from here. God. They're just taking chops today. (laughs) The phrase used in the way that we know it now comes from an 1807 article written by journalist William Cobit, or Colbat. Who knows? He's dead now. doesn't matter. Mm. Who... Uh, criticizes the English press for falsely reporting Napoleon's defeat by comparing it to the practice of throwing off scent hounds using fish. Hmm. 
So they'd use a stinky fish like a red herring, drag it along in a different direction from when they're trying to escape to. So the dog's going to go after that fish. Oh, I see. But, however, this was actually tested on an episode of Mythbusters and it was busted. Dang. Don't try this at home, kids. Man, I love Mythbusters. That's so good. That's so good. We should do a Mythbusters review podcast. We had an entire like 30-minute conversation mm-hmm. about Mythbusters <laughs> when we were at the airport the last time during a layover. <laughs> it was great. Anyways, back to books. So red herrings are a great device for an author to use to build tension in the story and keep the audience from quickly figuring out what's going to happen next. However, you do have to be careful when using them because a red herring, for a red herring to be effective, it needs to make sense within the story. It also has to be properly set up before being revealed. Otherwise, it may come off as lazy or cheap. Kind of the same way, it's kind of like a deus ex machina feels. Mm, kind of okay. cheap and just kind of pulled out of nowhere. Yeah. Like I said before, red herrings are mostly associated with murder mysteries. You can find them used effectively in other genres. Harry Potter's a great example, especially in the way the character is Sirius Black and Snape. I think most of you know what I'm talking about, but that's a great way to misdirect the audience and kind of give a a more satisfying conclusion to a story. Yeah. But I think one of my favorites is actually in the book Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Spoiler warning for Great Expectations, but it's been out for like over 100 years and you're not going to read it. I won't. So the main character, Pip, is invited to the home of a wealthy widow to entertain her niece, who is the same age as Pip. And when Pip later learns that he has a wealthy benefactor who is going to pay for him to become a gentleman, he assumes that it was the rich widow. However, he later learns that it was actually an escaped convict that Pip had helped out earlier in the story when he was a kid. Pip is horrified at first to learn that this like criminal has been sponsoring his whole life. But he eventually learns not to judge others and the fallacy of class system, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Whatever. You don't care. Yeah. It's good, though. It's a really good book, actually. I read it last year. It reads really well. Dickens is a good author. Who could have guessed? But basically, I'm just bringing this up to say that, like, Dickens could have made all of those points about class and society and all that without the bait and switch. But the story would have suffered. It wouldn't have been nearly as good. You know, the term bait and switch... Applies very well to a red herring. I was I was wondering this, and I couldn't find a evidence of like a link between the two phrases. But I probably for the best because that would end up being like a twenty minute tangent. But it did seem like those are so similar. It has to be a relation. <laughs> I I didn't find it. So if you guys know if there is, let us know. Yeah, let us know. So using the widow as a red herring allows the audience to feel the shock that Pip feels and also forces the audience to reconsider how they were perceiving the widow and making assumptions just as Pip did. So it's forcing you to be in the mind of the character, which makes it a way better story. And I like this example because it's not the kind of story that a reader would expect to be purposely misled in. And I think that's what makes it so much more effective because you... You assume when you're watching like a, you know, a CSI or whatever, you know, like the first suspect isn't going to be the real killer or whatever. Right. Because they need a 30 minute show. So you're kind of expecting to be misled. But in Great Expectations, you're not thinking like Dickens is like playing a joke on you the whole time. You don't just don't see that. Yeah. So I think that's really cool. Which brings us to the Carnivorous Carnival. Obviously, it's not a mystery or detective series, but a series of unfortunate events is more willing than like a Dickens book to play with its audience mm-hmm. you know Snicket loves to be subversive and unexpected as we talked about before he constantly is playing with the established story tropes especially children's story tropes to keep the audience on their toes i think the same applies especially for the story's biggest secret so far the meaning of vfd which has me hooked much like a herring exactly i'm going with the fish puns i love it 
I think you could really split a Sears and Fortune event in two halves, which I've dubbed BSQ and ASQ. Or before Shouty Quaggies and after Shouty Quaggies. Quaggies? I love that. Right? <laughs> so when I wrote it, I didn't get like a, um, a red line saying that was a typo. So either that's a real word or I've already added Quaggies into my personal dictionary on, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> on our, our, our... I think that's what it is because I'm seeing the red lines. Okay, yeah, that must be a thing. <laughs> uh, since the end of Austere Academy, when the Quagmire shouted VFD as they were being taken by Olaf, the story of the Baudelaire's has revolved around those three letters. Yet, four books later, we have learned, except for this book, really nothing about VFD. Yeah. And still, we don't know what the actual acronym stands for. Or is it initialism? I think it's an, it's initialism. an initialism. I'm sorry for calling it an acronym. Don't cancel me. Instead, Snicket has given us a series of red herrings, including, as you mentioned, one literal red herring. We had in Aristotle's Elevator, Very Fine Doilies, in Vile Village, The Village of Foul Devotees, and then in Hostile Hospital, The Volunteers Fighting Disease. Why is Snicket doing this? Does he simply enjoy teasing people? Does he secretly resent his audience and is trying to emotionally hurt them? Is he using the mystery as a device to create tension and intrigue in his story? Or does he have a, div or does he derive sexual pleasure from being a cheeky little scamp? We may never know, but it's probably, probably the yeah, it's probably the third one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how much of the plot of a series of fortunate events was planned out ahead in advance, but I do think introducing VFD right around the halfway point of the thirteen books was a purposeful choice. Because at this point, every book had been following the same basic outline, and the children being taken to a new guardian in one of Olaf's evil schemes. Do seeing the VFD mystery freshens up the story by adding a overarching narrative, a long-term payoff, if you will. So even when we return to the traditional Guardian plotline in Ersatz Elevator, it doesn't feel as stale because something else is going on greater than just Olaf in a disguise and their Guardians being dimwits. Right. And perhaps coincidentally, this is the same book in which the Baudelaire's are tricked by a literal red herring. Love that part. Right? So obviously, if Snicket wants to keep the plotline going over multiple books, he can't just reveal all the information about VFD at once. So instead, he employs a series of fakeouts, or red herrings, while giving out just little crumbs of real information. Each fake VFD also adds to the mystique of the real one. It builds it up even further in the reader's mind. And it also shows off Snicket's exceptional vocabulary because I don't know how he manages to come up with so many phrases for VFD. It's it's actually impressive. It's very impressive. Sure. So Snicket isn't just delaying, he's building. Building tension, building his world, and building excitement. People often praise Harry, Pro Harry Potter for the way that the books kind of mature with the audience as the series goes on. And I think a series of fortunate events really deserves the same praise. Because we've seen the themes and the topics that are discussed are getting more complex and nuanced and mature. And one of the ways that Snicket has accomplished this is with that cheeky little rose-colored fish. Well done. Thank you. I think that's a great comparison. Or not a comparison, but that's a, that's a great, like, it's such a big thing that he utilizes right. in this series. So Yeah. No, I th it's very interesting. Like, the last few books have all been revolving around a fake VFD, yeah. essentially. Love that. All right. Well, that's enough for me today. Why don't we take an exit off the road to pretension and pull up into the YA information station where Jess will use some of her advanced librarian skills 
comparable to those of Madame Lulu, to give us some insight into this wider story and world of YA. Yeah, y'all. So listen up. Okay, so we all know carnivals are meant to be fun entertainment, right? In theory. It's often associated with bright colors, bold patterns, laughing children. Uh, But as with many things, if you look under the surface a bit, carnivals can be quite dark. And full of disease. Right. Uh, But overall, they remain quite distinct and almost magical. If we go to the right one. Yeah. So it is this that makes carnivals as a setting, I think, so intriguing, just because it is just so bold and distinct. Mm -hmm. And so it's with this in mind that I've chosen to talk about books that take place in a carnival slash theme park setting. So I bring to you five YA books that I think you might want to check out if you liked The Carnivorous Carnival. Ooh, we got a top five list? Top five. Ooh, I like it. All right, it. I have these in order of when they were published. Okay. Okay, first one is Full Tilt by Neil Shusterman. It was published in 2003 and has an average Goodreads rating of 3.9. Now, Full Tilt, yeah, solid. Full Tilt is a book by one of my favorite YA authors and was one of the many books by him that I absolutely devoured in middle school. The main theme of this thriller is the relationship between a 16-year-old, Blake, and his 13-year-old brother, Quinn. So after winning a ticket to an invite-only amusement park from a mysterious girl, Blake finds that his little brother has stolen the ticket. I never had a girl, a mysterious girl, give me a ticket to anything. Yeah. Well, they were at a carnival, and she, like, pulls him in for a game and mm. gives him this ticket, and then she disappears. Ooh. And he's like, where did this girl go? And the guy's <laughs> like, what are you talking about? But he has this ticket. That's what matters. Yeah. So he finds that his brother has stolen it, and, like, something's wrong with his brother. Like, he's there but not really and in Mm. his eyes he can see carnival lights so he's like yo it has something to do with this carnival ticket so he makes his way into the phantom carnival only to learn that in order to get out he must survive seven deadly rides by dawn dope each yes yes each ride represents a deep personal fear and blake must face them off he's to save himself and his brother before the night is over it's like scott pilgrim but with roller coasters yeah roller coasters the hall of mirrors is my personal favorite oh that's gonna be great yeah no it's a really interesting read so i like that if you're into like thriller creepy definitely pick this one up awesome i love that So the second one is The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern, and this was published in 2011. Mm. The average Goodreads rating is 4.03, which is pretty good. Very good. It's also won the Goodreads Choice Award and the American Library Association's Alex Award in 2012. All right. So The Night Circus is one that arrives with no warning, appearing and reappearing at random in cities and towns all around. It's only open at night and shows off the world's best magical talent. Celia and Marco are two young magicians who have been raised to be the best at what they do and will eventually face off in a battle of wills and magic. Yes. The only problem is, in such close proximity, the two can't help but to fall in love. Of course. Regardless of their magic and their love, the show and competition must go on. Got a little bit of a tumultuous, tumultuous relationship. This book was originally written for NaNoWriMo over three, yeah. like, 
three sessions of NaNoWriMo. Wow, to shout out to NaNoWriMo. Yeah, and the audiobook is narrated by Jim Dale, who you all might know as the American narrator for the Harry Potter series. Oh, yes, our, our equivalent of... Uh... Alan Davies, not Alan Davies. No, Stephen uh, Fry. Stephen Fry, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, cool. it, yeah, once you, if you listen to it, you'll be like, I know this man's voice. Mm. Harry. 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 <laughs> All right. So, the next one is Pantomime by Harry. Laura. <laughs> it's Pantomime by Laura Lamb. Great author name. Yeah. Laura Lamb. Mm-hmm, mm. mm-hmm. L A M. Love that. Yes. This one was published in 2013 and has an average Goodreads rating of 3.9. Nice. It's won the Scottish Book Trust Teen Book of the Month. Wait, this is a Scottish book? No, it isn't. Oh, no, okay. An, I was like, yeah, no. A Scottish book written by someone with the last name Lamb? I mean, I, come on. I, I I don't think she's Scottish. I think she's they, American. Well, they liked it because they saw Lamb. Sure. And they're like. Or maybe they just liked the book. They can't read. <laughs> Um, it's also won the Bisexual Book Award and was listed a top 10 title for the American Library Association's list. This is one that the blurb on it is absolutely oh, atrocious. This one. You yes. showed me this. Oh, man. So I'll, I'll read my blurb. And then after, so you get a good taste in your mouth. And then afterwards, Spencer will read. <laughs> So this trilogy follows Jean, a debutante with everything you could ever want, except she harbors some dangerous secrets. One, she is both male and female, and two, she has magical abilities. And after a night of betrayals from her parents, Jean flees home dressed as a boy. She reinvents herself as Micah Gray and joins the circus as an aerialist. But soon he finds out that the circus has a darker side. Great. That's a solid blurb. Yeah. I mean, that really covers it. Right. Um, let's read what a professional was paid to write. Okay. Uh, in the land of lost wonders, the past is stern once more. Jean's life resembles a debutante's dream. Yet she hides a secret that would make her shunned by the nobility. Jean is both male and female. Then she displays unwanted magical abilities. Last seen in the mysterious beings from an almost forgotten age. Matters escalate further when her parents plan a devastating betrayal. So she flees home, dressed as a boy. The city beyond contains glowing glass relics from a lost civilization. They call to her, but she wants freedom, not mysteries. So, reinvented as Micah Gray, Jean joins the circus. As an aerialist, she discovers the joy of flight, but the circus has a dark side. She's also played by visions foretelling danger. A storm is howling from the past, but will she heed the roar? It's just so many... So many stop and starts here. There's no flow to it at all. She also has this thing happening. Oh, and then this... Oh, also, this. And then... But that thing is bad, but maybe? But, like, separately over here, this other thing's happening. At the same time, another thing is so bad. It's just too chaotic, so... And I know I read it purposely bad, but also all those stops I did were hard ends to sentence. There was, like, no commas in this whole thing. It's, It's like a middle schooler wrote it. It really is bad. Uh, Jean, she she's a boy and she's a girl. Uh, she was like a debutante, and uh, and then she she ran away. Oh, but she has magical abilities. Uh, but also she has magical abilities, and and then she's a circus, and then. But she's... before she's in the circus, she sees this other thing, which decides she doesn't want to do that, so she joins the circus. Yeah, but the circus is also like evil, and then um, there's there's howling, and she she may or may not listen. <laughs> Anyways, as bad as the blurb was, the book 
does have a good rating and it does have quite a few awards. So I would recommend checking that out, especially if you're into reading things like having an inclusive reading list. I'd be so mad if I was an author and I read that. I was like, that's what you wrote about this book? That's what people are going to read? Because I would never read that yeah. if I saw that, but I saw yours. It sounds absolutely fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the next one is actually probably the most popular of these five, mm-hmm. and it's Caraval uh, by Stephanie Garber, mm-hmm. which was published in 2016. It has an average Goodreads rating of four. Solid. And it was on ALA's, which is American Library Association's Best Fiction for Young Adults list. Nice. It was YALSA, which is <laughs> um, Young Adult Library something something. It's it's a young adult ALA kind of thing. It stands um, for YALSA Read This Book. <laughs> but it was YALSA's Teen's Top 10 pick. Mm. It was also voted Teen Vogue's Best YA Book of the Year. Lots of awards. So, yeah, quite a few. So, this one is a trilogy, and it is very peak YA. Mm. It involves a competition, romance, and the bond between sisters. Mm. That could be anything. Mm-hmm. So it, people have described this book as a cross between Hunger Games and The Night Circus, which I mentioned previously. Oh, okay. Caraval is a mysterious game slash performance held once a year by invite only. Mm. In this performance, the audience participates in the show. Scarlet and her sister Tella get invites one year, which is Scarlet's dream come true. But when they arrive, Tella is kidnapped by Caraval's organizer, and whoever finds Tella first is this year's winner of Caraval. If Scarlet doesn't find her sister before the end of the five days, Tella may be lost to her forever. Mm, that's exciting. Yeah, it's exciting. A little bit of romance. This one's a, a solid good read. I, I have friends that have recently read this, and nice. it, it's a trilogy, so just keep that in mind. So the next one is Harley in the Sky by Akemi Don Bowman. Another great author name. Really, like any three-name author name? Mm-hmm. Good. So good. This one was published in 2020 and has an average Goodreads ratings. Sorry, and had and has an average Goodreads rating of 3.98, almost at the four. Hey, it's hard to get four. Okay, so this one is the only contemporary realistic fiction book on this list. Okay, now I'm interested. So this is for for this you. Is, this is for the the emotional people out there. <laughs> yes, the ones not just so want the fantasy. feelings. Yeah. yeah, I don't need I don't need world building. I want I want tears. I want it, contemplation. Exactly. <laughs> so Harley Milano grew up dreaming. Sorry, Harley Milano is just a great character. It is. It is. <laughs> I love that. Um, Harley Milano grew up dreaming of becoming a trapeze artist. Who so her, hasn't? Her parents run a famous circus in Las Vegas, and she spends her evenings watching the show, hoping one day to lead it. But her parents insist she go to school. Uh, I just want to join the circus, Mom. <laughs> and after a particularly large fight over this thing, Harley runs away to join a new circus. She said, I don't like your circus. I'm joining this other circus. And it's a traveling circus called Maison du Mystère. While there, she struggles with the various life lessons being thrust upon her, from understanding the value of hard work and passion to reconciling with her past and the people she hurt along the way. So awesome! That sounds great. All of those sound really good. Yeah, they're they're they all got this this general carnival theme. Um, I think I I like that each one kind of does it a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. They all sound very unique. Yeah. And very much more modern than I was expecting with your list. For sure. So that's great. Yeah, so y'all check it out. Tell me what you think. 
Oh, show. All right. Well, I think that's it. That we is. got it. So thank you guys for listening. Just what are we going to be covering in our next episode? Our next episode, we're going to be talking about Book the Tenth, mm. which is... I literally threw it to you because I couldn't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Sli- slippery, slippery slope. Slippery slope. The slippery slope? Yeah. Book the Tenth, Slippery Slope. The Slippery Slope. And I'm very excited because apparently the lore ramps up in we, this one. We gonna be learning something. My pencil was worn out from all the underlining I had to do and all the notes I had to make. So it's gonna be a very good one. You guys are really gonna want to check that out. But until then, thank you so much for listening. And if you wanna hear from us, learn more, you can find us on both Instagram and the Twitter at NSYA Pod. That's NSYA P O D. Our intro song is by Alex Chavez, and you can check out more of his music on his Facebook page, Alex Moon. Alex Moon. Which uh, Alex and I recorded some songs th- earlier last year, and they're coming out fairly soon. I don't know exact date, but if you go on Alex Moon's page, you can sign up to pre not pre-order, but get an early listen to the first single we're releasing called Mike. Very exciting. Named after microphones. True. I don't I don't know if that's the case. Uh, you'll have to ask him. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks again, guys, for listening, and we'll see you again in a couple more weeks. That's right. And until then, if you're going to run away to the circus, just make sure both your legs are running with equal strength. <laughs> <laughs> and don't suck. Keep that in. <laughs> <Yeah>. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Oh, man. My diaphragm attacked me. (laughs) I hate when that happens. (laughs) I hate when my duodenum rebels against (laughs) the rest of my body. That's deep in your gut, okay? You Mm -hmm. wouldn't have heard that. I I felt it. (laughs) Starting a revolution. (laughs) They're singing all the Les Mis songs over there. Go cheese. Go cheese. If the cheese leaves, I'm killing myself.